Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Business Brew. I'm your host, Bill Brewster. This episode is brought to you by Stream by Mosaic. You can find them at streamrg.com. Stream is an expert interview transcript library that's become integral to my research process. I first discovered them about a year and a half ago, and since then, I've watched them build out an incredibly robust transcript library. It's somewhere that I go whenever I need background information on a company, and it is invaluable to me. Stream by Mosaic provides over 300 expert interviews per week. 70% of their experts are found exclusively on stream, and each interview goes through three layers of compliance screening. Recently, someone said stream is table stakes for good fundamental analysis, and I couldn't agree more. Please see streamrg.com where you can use the promo code BREW to sign up for a 14-day trial in order to get a more robust understanding of any company that you're interested in. This episode features Chris Cerrone, a partner at Acri Capital Management. Acri Capital Management is best known, among my colleagues at least, for their patient approach, long-term focus, and selection of high-quality businesses. I enjoyed talking to Chris immensely. I hope that all of you enjoy as listeners. There's no need for me to ramble on when you've got an hour and 50 minutes of Chris to listen to. So as always, none of this is investment advice. We are not your fiduciaries and we are not your investment advisors. You know the drill, so get your own advisor and do your own work. Nothing discussed is a solicitation or invitation to buy or sell a security. Please remember that the securities identified and described throughout this podcast do not represent all of the securities held, purchased, sold, or recommended for ACM client accounts. As a listener, you should not assume that an investment in the securities identified was or will be profitable. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Everything expressed here are the opinions of Chris and I. This is all entertainment, so please keep that in mind as you listen and enjoy the show. We're going to get to to Chris the investor, but we're going to start with Chris the Josh Waitskin fan here. And uh, we were having a brief conversation, and then I just said, "Whatever, let's turn on the mic and start recording." Where we what we were talking about is how limited the feedback loop can be in investing, and uh, how it would be nice to have uh, some sort of idea or product or whatever that would allow you to get feedback in real time, almost like a paper trading, but a paper investing product. Mm -hmm. And then we started talking Josh Waitzkin and I said, let's just go and record this. So that's the background for people that are just coming in. So should we, should we give a little background on who Josh Waitzkin is just in case? Yeah, man. You're you're driving this conversation as much as I am. All right. Do you want to do it or do you want me to? to No, you do it. I had Adam Robinson on and Adam's friends (laughs) with Josh, uh, but I think you know better than than I do, Josh. You seem to be a big Josh Waitzkin fan. Well, so I I consider him a mentor of sorts, even though we've never met. He doesn't know that I exist. It's mentorship in the spirit that Derek Sivers talks about in, in an essay that he wrote called How to Ask Your Mentors for Help. Uh, which I recommend checking out. It, th- the thing with Josh to me is that he's an inspiring example of someone who, who to use his own words, sort of embraces his funk. He lives his life sort of unapologetically true to himself. And there's some other people out there who I would describe that way. And, and those are usually the people 
who I gravitate towards and who I have just the most respect for. He is a very private person, but he wrote a book, The Art of Learning, uh, which is a great, great read for anyone who hasn't picked it up. Josh is the kid who they wrote Searching for Bobby Fisher yeah, after, right? Exactly. So he was he was the the subject of Searching for Bobby Fisher. He was a he was a chess grandmaster. He basically learned how to play in Washington Square Park in New York City against the guys who play there. Sort of rain, sun, snow, what have you. They're out there playing and and he learned a very sort of I think scrappy intuitive form of chess. Uh, and, and the book is great because it sort of, it chronicles his evolution. He, he, he became just passionate for the game. He loved it. And then somewhere along the line, they started trying to teach him the proper way of playing chess and he lost the love for the game. Hmm. And I think that really, dude, that happened to me with golf. a lot. Yeah. 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 When I was growing up, I was, um, I was a field player. And mm-hmm. I, I think I was reasonably good. I mean, I wasn't like, I, I don't know. I was somewhere around a three or a five or something like that. But to get to the next level, it got so like technical and there were, I don't know, it took the fun out. And, and, then, um, and then I started dating somebody and said, I'm too far away from being great and I'd rather, you know, date somebody. But it's an interesting comment because I feel like once I got really, really technical in swing thoughts, I lost part of what made me good. We'll pin this up because we'll come back to this, I hope, because I think this, one of the most interesting things that he talks about is the importance of sort of doing it your way. That if you follow someone else's path, you'll never achieve that sort of world-class performer status because you have to really embrace the core of who you are in whatever it is that you're doing, whatever art or activity in order to be really great. But anyway, so Josh, in addition to being a chess grandmaster, was a Tai Chi push hands world yeah, champion right, as well. He's, he's, he's tackled Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He's, he tackled multiple sort of mountains, I think, as he calls it, uh, in different disciplines. And then he realized he sort of sat back, I think, and he said, look, these seemingly unrelated uh, you know, activities where I've, I've had this tremendous success you know, what's in, what, what do they share? And the realization he had, which led to the book, the art of learning was it it was his approach to learning these, um, these disciplines that allowed him to become world-class. And so he sort of both writes about himself in the book, but also shares some of those, some of those sort of lessons that he picked up. So anyway, I think it's, I think it's fantastic. And so somebody asked him, you know, as your, so he's, his new and this is as of a little while ago, but the last time Tim Ferriss interviewed him, he was talking about how he is trying to learn the next mountain, which is climb the next mountain, which is this foiling, which is a form of surfing, I guess. Uh, I watch it on Instagram a lot. You're, you're out of the water, right? Yeah. And there's a fin and that's in the water and it's very fast. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It looks, I mean, it looks I'm amazing. pretty sure so, it's what Zuckerberg was doing when he was holding the flag on the 4th of July or whatever. <laughs> is that right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, and so what Josh did, and this is where it comes back to what we started talking about with the reps, I guess he, he, he figured out a way to put a motor on one of these things so that he didn't have to wait 
for the waves. He didn't have to get dragged in by a jet ski or, or, or sort of paddle through. He, he was able to motor out there and hmm. just increase the number of reps that he had on different waves and different falls, you know, to the point where maybe he could get in a thousand days worth, you know, in, in a week or something like that, what, what he would have otherwise been able to do. Hmm. And I, and because when you're surfing, I'm not a surfer, but I think you wait a while between being able to catch a good wave to practice on. And so then the parallels to investing are obviously there, which is we, you know, we get a limited number of reps and unlike surfing, I guess, where you would pretty immediately get some kind of feedback if you, you know, found yourself being pounded under the wave or eating sand or something like that. For us, we often have to wait years before we really get definitive feedback as to the, 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 the success or, or failure of an investment. And so the idea was somebody asked him, they said, well, how do you, if you were an investor, how would you increase the rep frequency? Like, how would you, how would you increase the speed of that feedback loop? And his answer to the question was, well, he, he went in a different way. And actually our mutual friend, Jake Taylor is sort of, pursuing this, I think a little bit with this idea of somatic feedback. So yeah, paying really close attention to the physiological and mental state you were in when you made the decision. So how many hours of sleep did I get last night? How do I feel? Am I agitated? Am I comfortable? Am I relaxed when you're making these decisions? And then, then tracing back the outcome of the decisions to the somatic state when you made the decision. And then hopefully, and you can, I mean, there's so much information now you know you have the the watch right that the apple watch that tracks vo2 max and your heart rate at all times and you know there's there's the dexcom where i guess you can track your your blood sugar levels oh, on yeah. a continuous basis don't you, you have like to. a little needle in your arm the whole time i think so i i i'm not a big fan of needles so the, the idea doesn't work super well for me but yeah exactly and so you could you could track all of this and you could you could have a a decision journal that doesn't just outline, you know, how could this be the greatest investment I ever make? How could this be the worst investment I ever made in valuation at price at time of decision, but what your blood sugar was and how many hours of sleep you had got and whether you'd worked out. And so that was Josh's response, which is really interesting. And I think could be, you know, fascinating. But the other idea that that kind of came to my mind was, could you create using historical case studies anonymized situations where you had a software program, you opened it up and you said, it said, okay, here's this business. And it could be something from 1993. Here are the transcripts. Here's the management team. Here's the financial statements. Here are a couple industry reports, something. It, it gave you some amount of information, but made it so that you didn't necessarily know which company it was so that there was some chance that you could kind of come at this without hindsight bias, right? And knowing yeah. what ultimately took place. And then you made a decision based on that. And then it immediately told you how that situation ultimately played out over a long period of time. And you could just dramatically increase the number of reps. I mean, for a trader, you would think that would be a lot easier to do because there would just be so many short-term intervals that you there, you know you wouldn't necessarily know. But if if somebody put the the sort of American Express salad oil scandal before you, you probably, if you're a student of 
business, you probably would identify what that case study would be, and then you would know how to answer it. And so the, the tricky part would be trying to anonymize it so that you, uh, you didn't already know. But I think then, you know, you, you just like any software, good software program, you sell it for a subscription fee to all the, the professional investors out there and all the traders and you're in business. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's, uh, it's so interesting to watch like the I, I'm sure you have been through so like my tenure as an investor is maybe five years since I've like known what I've been doing, right? And the QVC fire is something that so I own QVC and they had this big distribution center that had a fire. And I have never lived through having twenty to thirty percent of my fulfillment capacity taken offline. And mm-hmm. Like there wasn't, I didn't have some framework to work through of like how big of a a deal is this? And the best I could do was call, you know, my, my contact over there and she kind of walked me through how they were thinking about it. They didn't even know, right? It's, there's tons of, she was like, look, people want answers right now. We're more concerned with employee safety. Like there, people still can't even get in the building is everything okay? They're like very real world operator questions that people have, not a spreadsheet. And I do, I think it's one of, it's an example. I mean, I think uh, we're recording on the day that Netflix is off 20%, but you know, people are experiencing a growth pocket and a long-term secular thesis. Uh, there's these, these things I think you almost have to live through to really know how you're going to respond, but living through it, how um you know how do you prep yourself for that is is really difficult i think as an investor well i think there's I, you know i've been fortunate right i i've worked with and and sort of learned from chuck ockery for the last 10 years right and so one of the things that that chuck brings which which is always super valuable from my point of view is he has that collection of experiences you know, that's sort of cumulative over all those years and he can draw on past events and that, that have parallels to what's going on today. And and that can be really helpful. And I think that's why as you, as you go along, investors get better uh, up into a point probably. And so if you could, if you could somehow increase the reps, then maybe you could accelerate that a little bit. Am I, um, Circling back to Josh, am I correct that he said that the way that he learns is slowing down? Like, like when he was learning push hands, didn't he practice emotion really, really slowly to train his muscles how to do something? Yeah, I think he he I think he calls it sort of the mastering the micro in order to to master the macro or, or something. I'm, I'm paraphrasing, and I'm sure he said it a lot more eloquently than that. But yeah, I think I think that is. That is exactly what he does. And, and it's, it's, um, I think you can do that in this, in this example as well with investing, where you could, you could take micro examples and say exactly, you know, to your point about Netflix today, instead of trying to get Netflix, the 30 year history, exactly right from an investment point of view, maybe it's just, you know, what is the proper response today? based on the information that you've been given 
over the next three or five years or something like that. Or even something smaller and more micro than that and, and, you know, look at transcripts and say, you know, should this comment that was made in this transcript in the third quarter of 2016 be taken as important or not? And, you know, I think that's, and, and that's something that we think a lot about here because of course we're, you know, as you know, we, we, we try very hard not to sell our businesses unless it's absolutely necessary to do so. And there's a lot of noise and you're trying to sift through all that noise and, and make some sense of it and determine whether or not something's a, a relevant data point or not. And one of the things that we do to try to resist the urge to sell or to trade in general is we, we do essence statements. So we write down, it can be a sentence, it can be paragraph, but you're, you're basically trying to get down what the, what the real key idea is about a business. And then the other thing I do, and it keeps coming back to Josh Waitzkin, but he tells us about this most important question exercise where I think the way that he uses it is at the end of the day, he basically asks himself, what's the most important question that I'm facing right now? And then he turns his mind off and he sort of lets his subconscious work on that overnight Mm -hmm. and then revisits it in the morning. What we do is we try to write down what the most important question or questions are for all the businesses we own. And then what's really important that you do as a follow-up to that is you do what he calls gap analysis. So how has your articulation of those most important questions changed over time? Because that will show you a little bit about how the evolution of your understanding of a business is changing over Mm -hmm. time as well. So you don't want to just have a Word document, which you resave every time you change them. You want to at least have a PDF somewhere where you where you've documented. Yeah, red line or something. Yeah, exactly. And then you track that over time. Hmm. And when you have that essence statement or you have that most important question and then something comes up on the second quarter call, you just look back to that and you say, well, does that impact in a material way what I've written down as being the most important question or the most this this essence statement? If the answer is no, then it makes it a lot easier to sort of set it aside and, and not get too agitated about it. And if the answer is yes, then you can take Then further. you have work to do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Then, then you got to roll up your sleeves and get after it. But it's a great filtering mechanism, I think. Uh, we yeah. find it really helpful. So, man, all right. So first, subconscious working on it. Is this why you're interested in meditation a little bit, do you think? I think... For meditation, I, to me, the what I think meditation holds the key to is being a little bit more present, yeah. which is something that I think is a major work in progress for me. It's just something I've, I've is as diligent as I am and as disciplined as I am about getting enough sleep at night or eating clean or getting to the gym. I've struggled my entire adult life to cultivate a consistent, meaningful meditation practice. It's just one of these things that I haven't done well. And uh, I have also sort of uh, struggled to be as present as I would like to be. And I think the two probably go hand in hand. But no, I, I haven't really tried to do the subconscious MIQ overnight and then sort of wake up in the morning and journal that's that's kind of the 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 
best practice, I think, is you you write down at the end of the day what that most important question is. You go you go home, you spend time with your family, you sleep on it, you wake up in the morning, and before you check your phone, before you look at email, you look at the news, anything like that, you just journal. Start writing on it, huh? You start writing, and you get that discipline. This might be a Tim Ferriss thing, but it could be Shane Parrish, too. I don't know, but stop mid-sentence when you're writing. Mm-hmm. Right. So like write the most important question and maybe start one more sentence and just stop halfway through. Yeah. I think that's pretty cool. said that because that was his way of sort of, because you know, then if you, if you stop the sentence halfway through, then you know exactly where you have to pick up the next day Hmm. and you get momentum. You're already moving in the right direction because sometimes if you, if you carry it all the way through to the end of that thought and you end or the end of that task and you close your book and you go home, then the next day you get to your desk and you're looking around and you're like, well, what, what am I going to start with? Yeah. You got writer's block all over again. Yeah, exactly. But if you've got Hmm. something half written, you just finish that sentence and now you're rolling. Ah, that's really smart. I thought that it was because your mind would keep working on it overnight. Well, that might happen too. Yeah. I like the idea of it gives you something to write. Mm -hmm. Uh, Something that was interesting. I think that Adam said it on Jim O'Shaughnessy's podcast that the three of us did together, but we were, I had asked Adam or maybe Jim did, you know, this concept of reading 500 pages a day or a week or whatever, however the legend has morphed. Right. And, and Adam's comment was, he said, I like to read one thing and then really focus on it. So I think going back to your idea of simplification, getting a lot of bang out of the buck of the work you're doing rather than thinking about five different places or, or, you know, trying to churn through info certainly has helped me a little bit. I don't know. I got a long way to go on this. Well, I think focus is, and that's focus to me is, is one of the sort of keys to how we approach investments. There's a great line by Phil Fisher goes something like, you know, I, I don't want a whole bunch of good investments. I want a few outstanding ones, which goes to that issue of focus. And so that, and and I think it, it can be hard to keep up with everything. I mean, all the documentaries, all the podcasts, all the new books that are being written all the time. I mean, it's overwhelming, right? And, and, and I like Tim Ferriss very much. And so I've subscribed to his five bullet Friday and sometimes I just have to say no, because yeah. there's so many little things in there that I wanted to, to, to read or, or watch. And I just have to stay focused on what I'm working on. A lot of times, the best thing to do is just to go back and reread something that you already know. It's on the bookshelf, right? And, you know, it's in the part of the bookshelf where you, where you put things that you want to reread. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the, yeah. the, the other 80% is stuff that I'll probably never look at again. But that one right there, those are the things I want to reread. Huh. And you go back and I think you just get a lot more out of it sometimes. You see something, something resonates with you that didn't resonate the last time you looked at it. And so anyway, I think there's, there's a lot of value in just being really focused. Huh. I like that. I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm thinking of some of your answers that you provided me with and, and books that, that, that. I should reread Shantaram. That's the thought I have. Anyway. Well, I'm I'm halfway through. Are you? Yep. It's fantastic. Yep. It is. It's uh, beautifully written. It's just it's a it's a very long book. 
It is long. People ask me what it's about. I'm like, well, life, love, drug running, uh, escaping prison. Like, I don't know what they don't cover in that book. India, but it's it's incredible. So the audiobook is also that's how I consume most books these days is by uh, listening to them. And there's a there's a pretty outstanding narration actually huh. on Audible. You know, the audiobook you got to listen to is Sam Zell's. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah, because he down. reads it. Those are the best. And it's in like that raspy voice that he's got. <laughs> it's amazing. So anyway, let's talk about Acre Capital and your firm and whatnot. Or I apologize if I said it wrong. If I did, is it asset management? What is the official title of, of your the firm? The official title is Acre Capital Management. There you go. All right. Yeah. You want to inform people on the three-legged stool, and then we can get in a little to some of uh, the more advanced concepts. Yeah. So, I mean, if you don't mind, maybe the thing to do is a little bit of a, a history lesson to start, because I think that might interest people. Because I think it's hard to understand Acre Capital without knowing Chuck and understanding Chuck. Yeah. So will you indulge me for a minute? I, I, I'll tell you what, I would love to. Chuck is like a hero of mine. I Everyone that I respect loves Chuck. I got to talk to Chuck for like two minutes once and I asked him if Telesites <laughs> was the next American Tower. And he looked at me and he said, son, American Tower might be the next American, American Tower. Tower. And I said, all exactly. right. <laughs> and what'd you do about it? Uh, I didn't buy American Tower and here I sit poorer. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right. So- so the whole the, the the story for Acre Capital, I I think, kind of starts summer 1968. So we're going back a little ways, and that's the that's the time when Chuck became a stockbroker in Washington D.C. Um, worked for a business called Johnston Lemon, which was one of the sort of premier Washington D.C. based investment banks back then brought Marriott public, for example. And in his own words, he described himself as a know-nothing back at that point. He had an English degree. uh, He had been pre-med at one point, but he had no formal business training of any kind. And so he started off by asking some pretty basic questions like, what makes a good investment? What makes a good investor? He was basically just trying to solve this investment puzzle, right, that we all we all struggle with. Man, imagine Chuck Acre not no like as a no nothing. That's insane. Blank canvas. Yeah. Nothing. Huh. Just entirely. He he actually said that he'd taken one of those vocational quizzes. You know, it says, you know, what do you like to do? And then it tells you what you should go be when yeah. you grow up, kind of thing. And this is what it told him. So anyway, so he's so he's trying to figure out the 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 investing world in nineteen sixty eight. And there were sort of two books, I think, that really made a big impact. One was John Train's Money Masters, which is, by mm, the way, in that I group. I like that book. It's one of the That's best. That's a good book. It's fantastic. And every time I read it, I get something new out of it. And in that book, John Train interviews Warren Buffett. And Warren provides a list of what makes a good investor and what makes a good investment in that chapter. And as the way, as Chuck says, I don't think he's ever gone and said all of that in such a concise way anywhere else. Hmm. So that, that made a really important 
imprint on Chuck's early thoughts about what you what you look for in investment. In fact, since everyone's going to say, well, then what does it say, right? <laughs> well, might as well tell them. Wonderful businesses. There are four characteristics. Good return on capital without accounting gimmicks or lots of leverage. Understandable businesses. One should be able to grasp what motivates the people working in them and why they appeal to their customers. That's two. They see their profits in cash. That's three. And they have strong franchises and thus freedom to raise prices. That's four. And then in terms of the list of what it takes to succeed as an investor, he says you have to have six qualities. First is you must be animated by controlled greed and fascinated by the investment process. That's one. You must have patience. You must think independently. You must have the security and self-confidence that comes from knowledge without being rash or headstrong. You have to accept it when you don't know something. which is, And you have to be flexible as to the types of businesses you buy, but never pay more than the business is worth. So, 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 so that, that made a really big impression on Chuck in 1968. And then the other book that he came across, he came across in 1972, 100 to 1 in the Stock Market. Ah, that's a which, great book. Which is a classic. And you know what? That's seasoned really well. Yeah. I mean, and then Chris Meyer did a, a re-up of it with 100 Baggers. And he did a great, yeah, great, great job with that. And I think sort of re-energized the original too. You know, I think, I bet you the, the book sales went through the roof after Chris's book came yeah, out. Yeah, that's probably right. Um, I know that's how I bought mine. Yeah. And so, uh, and this, so, so 100 to 1 was written by Thomas Phelps, who was a, an investment manager based in Boston back then. And what he did in the book was he went back and I think he looked at 300 or 400 businesses that one could have purchased between basically 1932 and 1967, and they still would have returned 100 times your money by 1972. So there were you know, a few hundred hundred baggers, basically, that he, he, he sort of chronicled in the book, some in depth and some in list form. And so the big takeaway for Chuck from that was the importance of compound returns. And, and I think that sort of sets this whole thing into motion, the whole, the whole Acre capital sort of comes out of, out of that. And so what we say is we, we focus on, on rate of return here. Uh, that's, that's, that's sort of our North star. Chuck likes to say that the bottom line of all investing is rate of return. We actually have it written on the crown molding of our conference room. Oh, nice. There are three other things written on the crown molding of our conference room that we may get to organically as the conversation goes along to see. One of them is focus. So we already touched on that. So, and so, and what he did was he looked back and he said, okay, let me study the historical rates of return for all these different asset classes over long periods of time. And what you find out is that public companies that are based in the US are a pretty outstanding asset class. They've compounded at basically 10% on average annually over the past, at that time, it was 70 years. If you carry the analysis through to today, it's still roughly 100%, 10% rather over now 100 years on an unlevered basis. 
And so what we say to our clients is that our goal is to compound their capital at an above average rate. So we're trying to meaningfully exceed that 10% long-term average. And the way that we do that, the, the, the sort of the, the foundational notion that we have, it goes back to those attributes of a wonderful business from John Train's chapter on Buffett is we're trying to buy businesses with above average rates of return, return on their invested capital that are purchased at reasonable valuations that are managed by outstanding teams, people who have both skill and integrity uh, and who can reinvest their capital um, at high rates going forward. And that's three legs. So a lot of people who know Aukri Capital know that we use the three-legged stool as a construct for what we're looking for in finding these sort of above average businesses, business quality, people quality, and reinvestment. And so that's that's kind of the that's kind of the 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 firm in a nutshell. We're we're based I, I can't tell you about Middleburg uh, Aukri Capital without talking about Middleburg, Virginia really quickly. Do you know Middleburg? I don't. I know Richmond and I I like I like Virginia a lot, uh, but I don't know Middleburg. I assume it's a uh, smaller, sleepy town, and uh, the people are really good people. That's that's my assumption. So it's it's a small, small, as we have, I think, an official census population of 500. Wow. Here in Middleburg. It's, it's sort of in the Virginia Piedmont. I think it was originally, its, it's original claim to fame was that Jackie Kennedy would come here to ride horses when the Kennedys were in the White House. And so now it's a sort of three street, one traffic light town with uh, sort of some restaurants and shops and a sort of higher end uh, resort. And then here we are managing capital in what used to be a tavern that prior to being a tavern was a Ford dealership. Wow. And we've, uh, we've remodeled the inside, but the exterior looks the same as so occasionally somebody will come and tap on the glass and say, you know, is the tavern open? Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, that's and awesome. 13 of us, there are five of us who do investments and, and 13 of us total. And I like to compare it to so New York City. I don't know. Do you have a guess? This is a fun game. Uh, how many traffic lights there are in in New York City? Oh man, no, I don't. I don't even know how to. I go through <laughs> it on a podcast. Uh, Thirteen thousand, I believe. That's what that's what Google tells me anyway. Huh. So I just like to say we simplify things. We went from you know I I, I came from Goldman Sachs. That's where I started my career out of school. I was there for a couple of years, and then in 2012, 10 years ago, I came uh, down to Middleburg to to work with Chuck, and uh, and so from 13,000 traffic lights and eight million people to 500 people on a single traffic light. So we simply yeah. What made you say yes? It was Chuck. I mean, it was the opportunity to learn from somebody like that, and I was I was 24 years old completely blank canvas for the most part. And it was the sort of the, the idea that I could learn from, you know, this legendary investor. He and, was already uh, Chuck Ackrey at the time. Like, cause I feel like he was, he's become legendary over yeah. the last, I don't know, 10 years. Or maybe I've just become, maybe I just know him now. 
he so he I I, I think over time it's definitely his his popularity has increased since the time when or I guess it's 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 the number of people who who've gotten to know him seems to have increased in the time since I've been here but at that point it was still very clear based on his investment track record that he really was you know a a, a great investor and somebody who was interested and willing to teach me and so that was just hugely appealing and honestly i was never a big city kind of person and so i welcomed the opportunity to to come down here in fact i learned how to ride horses since i moved here oh yeah uh, yeah that was that was that was a thing so you know it's it, it, i've embraced middleburg I would ride horses, but I'm like deathly allergic. Really? Yeah. I, when I, I I learned to ride when I was a kid, my grandma's got some horses and like, I would just be, it was just not everywhere. It was, it was a terrible experience for me, but I like horses. Is it the hay? You know, I think, um, I think it was something that they were spraying on them in the barn actually. But cause I, my dad has some horses and when I see them, I'm not quite as allergic, but like cats get to me. Hopefully dogs, I, I grew up with labs. I'm about to get a golden hmm. in like three weeks. So hopefully I am, I'm not allergic to dogs. We'll see. So I don't I think I am. A, I grew up with them. Labs are, so I have a, my assistant. Yeah. You got which, a black one, right? Yeah. And if the people who watched this, well, I don't know how to do this, but anyway, he's lying on the floor right next to me, Duke. And he's, he's just a fantastic dog. Labs are are wonderful we had a yellow one big box head his name was ringo <laughs> dog was just like marley except like a moose and then we had a black one ruby she was fantastic so i don't know i hope the kids uh i know my my second specifically i think he feels you know he's a middle so i think he mm. i think the dog will be good for him they're the best yeah they're, they're the absolute best unconditional um, love yes exactly yeah and so that's that's kind of in a nutshell what and I, I I thought that you might too well let me let me let me throw in three other quick things about Chuck and then I think I have some things that might interest you some Chuckisms since, I, dude I'm telling you I'm here to listen whatever you want to talk about I'm here for all right so so all of that so Chuck taught me all these you know we, we talked about the power of compounding and and not selling unnecessarily couple other things just to note i think so we run a very concentrated strategy so if you go back over the years typically the top five holdings account for any for anywhere between 50 and 70 percent of the assets in our portfolios and low turnover so typically less than 10 percent each year can i ask you uh, a follow-up on this yeah all right because i'm curious when how did when you let a position grow how do you think about portfolio construction mm -hmm. either as a static portfolio or as new money comes in because this has been one of the things that as i've studied your writing specifically the art of not selling i've like thought of a little bit and and david gardner who i also interviewed i mean he 
I think when he lets things run, like he gets pretty concentrated and you got to be comfortable mm -hmm. with letting it run. So it's something I've wanted to ask. So well, let's start with the static portfolio because that's a little bit, that's, that's a little easier. So if you have a static portfolio and, and, and certain things are doing well, it's absolutely our preference to allow them to grow in size up into a limit. And what exactly, you know, the follow-up question is, well, what's the limit? And it depends. So in some cases, so we manage a mutual fund and there are explicit diversification requirements imposed upon us by the SEC. Yeah. And so that dictates to some degree how concentrated you're able to allow the portfolio to get. Isn't that why but, you guys had to buy, uh, not that you don't like S&P Global, but wasn't it like you got to your limit on Moody's or something and you had to get S&P also? Is yeah, that... so your, your American Tower sort of preferred SBAC became sort of the double down. Uh, you know, we, we own MasterCard and then we were able to sort of increase our exposure to that business model by buying via Visa. Visa. That makes sense. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and so, you know, the, that helps a lot. And so even though the mutual fund has 22 holdings, there's some sort of repeats in there, right. That, that, that make the number of business models per se fewer. We have both KKR and Brookfield asset management, for example. So again, it's sort of giving you exposure to the same major trends and, and themes. But in a in sort of an unconstrained portfolio, the the size of the positions can get, you know, in excess of twenty percent and that doesn't cause us any sort of indigestion. I think, you know, if I if pressed on what exactly the, the max would be, I think if you go back and look historically, as you get closer to thirty. I think there's been an inclination to sort of pare back that hasn't happened recently, but, uh, but that's, so, so the, the idea of trimming is, is one that we just really don't, we just don't really trim and we, and we don't, there, it kind of goes to a bigger issue of optimization. And so this idea of sort of portfolio optimization and I guess what I've learned from Chuck is that in some ways optimizing is insatiable. So, hmm. and, and I think there's a certain amount of humility that comes into play where you say, I'm taking, I'm taking money out of this business that's doing really well and I'm reallocating it over here to something that hasn't done as well. And I'm right in both of these instances. Whereas if you sort of allow a business to run, you're, you're, you're sort of, they're earning their position sizing as opposed to sort of you dictating. And so there's not a lot of that optimization that, that goes on. Not you know a lot where of I screwed up? Adding. I'm, I'm just, I'm trying to add value to the conversation. I'm curious to hear your take on this. Like this happened to me with Charter, right? And I funny enough, you were talking about transcripts that had things three years ago. When I got involved in, in Charter, the reason I got comfortable with the integration issue is I was reading old transcripts and they called it out as an issue. And when I was at BMO, I had lived through an integration. It just kind of made sense. But here I was looking at Altice, which, you know, it's maybe too early to determine whether or not it was the right or wrong decision. 
but I traded execution for a multiple. And I think had I not been so concerned with optimizing at the time, and I just, I mean, you know, people will say cable has its issues now, whatever, I'm comfortable with that argument, but I probably should have just let it be, you know, and I was like, well, this one's stretched and this one's not. And I have a view on the asset base so I can sacrifice a little on management. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, well, crap, why did I even do that? Right? Like my perception of perfect put me in and it wasn't, it, it wasn't perfect, but my perception of the need to optimize put me in a scenario where I got myself in quicksand. And it sounds like, you know, the prioritization, you kind of got the, the valuation above the, the, the management quality, which, yeah. which I think, and I'd argue asset quality and a, yeah, and asset, right. And I mean, leverage and, and a number of other factors, right. As well. Yeah. You I can feel free pieces. to keep kicking me if you'd like, <laughs> <laughs> but you know what if I mean? You like wanna spend the rest of the podcast on my mistakes. We'll run out of time before I run out of mistakes. So, <laughs> well, I could kick you back and, and I want you to, I please, if I say anything that's offensive, understand that like I, you guys are awesome to me and I'm only trying to say it to learn. But I, I have thought to myself as I've looked at some of the stuff you've owned, like Dollar Tree versus Dollar General was an interesting choice. It was, yeah. And like, I don't know, how do you, how do you think through like when that gap, I mean, this is the art of it all, I think, but how do you think through when that gap in valuation exists and is justified versus it's not? Well, I, no, I mean, you're, you're absolutely right. There, there are a number of examples where and we can run with Dollar General, Dollar Tree, where in the early days when we first were invested in in Dollar Tree, it was a much simpler story than it is today. It was just the Dollar Tree, everything for a dollar concept. And I used to say in those days that I could literally give the conference call. It, you know, Bob Sasser, who was the CEO at the time, was just very consistent in the message to shareholders. And I think he was very consistent with his message to his employees and to the customers as well. And I think there was a lot of value and power in that, in that sort of very clearly defined purpose. And, and then they acquired family dollar. And, you know, I remember when that announcement was made looking at the slide presentation and there were mentions of EBITDA Hmm. in that slide deck. And I went back and I looked at every transcript, you know, you can do document search in Bloomberg. So I went back and I document searched every document, every transcript presentation that Dollar Tree had ever given in search of the use of EBITDA. And it did Hmm. not exist anywhere in any prepared comment that they had ever made before. And I thought to myself, well, that's interesting and mildly concerning. Not that EBITDA is, is such a horrible metric, but it was, it was something new. It's a focus this shift was a, on a non-cash term that they'd never talked about before. And they'd never talked. And it, it, what it made me think was this, this idea, I don't know where this idea came from, but I don't know that it came from inside of Dollar Tree. Yeah. And I still don't know where the idea really came from. 
but it made me think that somebody had maybe convinced them that this was a good thing to do mm-hmm. and that it was sort of taking them away from that really simple idea that had had been so powerful over time and it turned the the business into something far more complex and they've struggled you know mightily it's no secret since that time and and they won they won that bidding war against dollar general with a lower offer hmm. and it was a really interesting case study in 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 you know maybe game theory you know in in the way that that all went down but there was a winner's curse associated with that because dollar general's business stayed simple yeah, and they were able to continue just executing on what they had been doing for years and they have run laps around what dollar tree has been able to do since then. Looking at the and, locations, it would have been interesting if dollar general had won because dollar general's footprint is quite a bit different from family dollars mm-hmm. from what I've seen driving around. The business models are are just so much more like Dollar General and Family Dollar than what Dollar Tree was doing, and I think maybe there was some frustration at Dollar Tree because they had become just excellent merchandisers, and they 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 really and supply chain sort of wizards as well, and so they would go over to Asia and they would find these great products that they could sell at their margin for a dollar and then they would basically pick them up at the factory gates and arrange for all of the transportation and hmm. sorting and shipping to the United States. And they were really, really very good at that, but they were coming across in those, those shopping trips products that they couldn't sell for a dollar. And that I think they said, you know, th- these are great products and wouldn't it be great if we could have a place to sell these. And they had at that time a concept that they were testing called deals, which was a multi-price business similar to what family dollar and dollar general are. And, uh, you know, maybe that was part of it as well. I'm not sure, but you're absolutely right. The, so at, you know, maybe, and this is where the art of not selling, I think if you really wanted to push me on this, right, you would say, and I I think you made a comment on, on a prior conversation about sort of being a frog in, in boiling water. And at what point do you realize the water's boiling? And, And, you know, at what point, in this business degradation process, do you know it's time to get out? And if you're too slow to finally come around to the idea, because we say in the, you know, in the, in the paper, it's not the art of never selling, right? It's the art of not selling with parentheses around the not, and that's maybe too subtle. But the, the idea is we're not selling unnecessarily. We're not interrupting compounding unnecessarily, which is sort of the first rule of compounding as per Charlie Munger. And so then what is, what is the right time to sell? It's when the business or people cease to be exceptional in our eyes. In our eyes. And so at what point did Dollar Tree sort of cease to be exceptional? Was it a year after the family dollar acquisition? Was it three years after? You would have made a lot more money had you pivoted at the time of the acquisition, purchased Dollar General, sold Dollar Tree, and own that, and it's been a great business. But that's what's hard about the art of not selling is knowing when to sell on the business. And and side. the art of not selling is not like is there is there ever a valuation? I mean, I have to think the answer is yes, and it's a very hard question to answer. But it's something that I've been fascinated with. Like it seems as though mathematically, at some point 
selling is the right decision. That yeah. said, I mean, I don't know. I was looking up stupid things I've said in the past, and I told you, like, I sold Apple thinking that mathematically I was correct, and my analysis was obviously garbage because I it was not the right time to sell. Like, how do you think about, you know, it? we're on the back end of some what people would call bubble valuations coming in. Like, how do you think about, like, when something gets really stretched, just sitting still? I think that's a really like hard skill to develop. So the, uh, the, the answer to the, the direct question is there is, I think there is a time when valuation can become so egregious that you would sell based on valuation. And I think if you're looking out five or 10 years and you can't conceive of a scenario where you're going to generate a satisfactory return, then it could be a situation where you would where you would sell on the basis of valuation. It's just the hard thing is, from our experience, the very best businesses surprise you. You know, they 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 start a new line of business, or there's some enlightened acquisition that opens up a new area of growth, or they they are able to expand margins to a place where you never thought possible. We've had businesses that have. I mean, O'Reilly, which is a, a retail business that's brought its working capital negative and been able to use the the proceeds to fund repurchases. I mean, stuff that you would have never imagined, you know, a retailer with negative working capital, how is that even possible, right? And so it's it's really painful to look back with remorse at a decision to sell what you knew was an outstanding business because it got a two, you know, a year or two ahead of itself in terms of the price. And so, and I think you, you wrote it somewhere that it's more important to be really sure about the quality of the business than it is to be, whether it's 10 or 20% too expensive. Well, I uh, may have written that, but then I bought Altice. So what, what does that say about me? <laughs> but yes, I, I have uh, gotten, I have gotten to that point And like, I, I really, you know, I thank you for writing that paper. That, that paper is something that I've spent a lot of time on and it's bent my mind a lot. And I, you know, people have asked me recently, because I talk about Peloton, I like the product a lot, mm-hmm. a lot. And I've avoided the stock. And at the end of the day, the reason that I have is like, I just don't think it's a high enough quality business that I want to own it versus the other universe. And if I didn't study what you guys wrote, I wouldn't have come to that conclusion. And I, you know, have gotten waxed on that. So uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, I, 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 and the other part of it, is it's so? How do you think about these great rates or these great businesses versus base rates? And like you know, everybody knows. Uh, well, not everybody, but a lot of people know the the paper that shows you know what all the equity return is from such an infinitesimal percentage of mm-hmm. the market. Like tiny. Right? Yeah. So how do? Yeah, that's that's what I mean. Like like very small. How do how do you uh think about like this is a great business today, but boy. It, is the competitive advantage period going to go away or like, why is this going to continue? Shouldn't capitalism kill this? Right. Well, and, and I think that's what we all are driven by as investors is we have this belief that we're going to be able to pick out. I think it's, I think you guys were talking about it on, on a podcast and the number was one in 20, I think, right. That, that really drive the returns over the long period of time. And, and we all sort of think that we have the ability to identify that one in 20. 
there's a there's a quote by Richard Koch, something to the effect of most of what exists in the universe, the actions, resources, ideas have little value, yield little result. But then on the other hand, there are a few things that work fantastically well hmm. and have this tremendous impact. And uh, sort of he states that as a universal concept. I think it absolutely applies to investing. I mean, we when you go back and you look at the track record that that Chuck and and our team has assembled going back to 1989, a dozen or so businesses account for nearly all the returns over that period of time. Hmm. Even though the portfolios have contained hundreds of businesses. And so one of the challenges that we face, and Chuck talks about this a lot, is that it isn't always obvious to us right away which businesses are going to be the truly exceptional ones. And they sort of reveal themselves to us over time. So there are these false starts and businesses that we think are exceptional don't turn out that way. Managers who we think have that unique combo of skill and integrity disappoint us, come up short in one way or another. And so we're always sifting. That's what keeps us going. That's what we love to do. But that's the reason why the portfolio, if you look back over the investment partnership, I think since its inception in 93, it's owned 120 or 130 businesses. But again, a dozen really have accounted for all the returns over that period of time because a few things work out fantastically well. And what's really interesting about it is some of the businesses that have had the greatest impact over time, uh, like American Tower, for example, weren't sized to be the largest position initially. Hmm. But yet they still, over the fullness of the track record, were the ones that really made the difference. And so to me, that's really encouraging, right? Because it means you don't have to get the position sizing right from day one. But it also argues for allowing those businesses, once they've earned that bigger piece of the portfolio, to keep it, as opposed to trimming them back. They've sort of righted your mistake for you. Hmm. And now you should let them run, I think, within yeah. reason, of course. And, and, and uh, you know, but I think it's a different story if they've earned a bigger slice of the portfolio because they've grown their underlying earnings or free cash flow per share versus the valuation quintupled or something like that. But yeah, I mean, we start with the idea that there are just, a, there are a few truly exceptional businesses that have durable competitive advantages that will withstand the test of time, whether it's regulation or innovation, competition, and that those just don't come around very often. And that's why, that's why when we find one, we try to hold on to it really tight. And we, you know, because they're so rare, we, we fill a portfolio, we can get, we can find eight or 10 or 12 of those. Concentrate all your capital there, then, and have, have enough sense to leave it alone. Then you're in business. You know, the issue is when you bury those exceptional businesses in a portfolio of a hundred others that are less exceptional and then they, or, or, and you sort of trim them as they get to be larger and, and you never really let them make that impact. You know, for some reason, I have this thought in my head and maybe it makes sense and maybe it doesn't, but it's almost as if, you know, Charlie talks about investing as a paramutual system and thinking about horse mm -hmm. racing, right? It's like, mm -hmm. 
you pay a bunch of if you're familiar with horse racing you pay the stud fee and then you get a horse and like you have no idea what you have it's just a small horse and you know it's all speculation until they hit the track and it's as if you know okay so this really great stud or this really great foal or whatever that you paid almost nothing for comes out and can run like crazy and then instead of like heaping resources on that young horse what i think i have done and what i think investors kind of do is like well there's this fatter horse that i spent more on or something so can i turn this fat horse into this horse that that is really ready to run or you say like well boy this fat horse can like pay me more if it wins and it's like yeah but that thing sucks like this other thing is ready to go mm-hmm. and it's interesting to me how how flawed my thinking has gotten at times because i've allowed the odds offered to justify like a fundamentally flawed idea hmm. it's interesting well like if you think about it it's like i have these two horses and i and it's clear that one is better but i'm like well right. the the odds are not worth the bet. So I'll just take the one that can't win, but the odds are better. Right. And it's like, well, you better size that. Right. I think, I think that's the very natural evolution of, of a lot of investors where you, you, you hear about folks who start off as being sort of deep value investors in the Graham and Dodd sense, because there's a quantifiable value that you can point to and say, that's, that's what I'm investing in. And then a lot of these investors go along the same learning curve that that Warren went on and and Charlie helped him and they they graduate to understanding that it's far more important to find that exceptional manager and pay a little bit more that that outstanding business franchise and pay a little bit more than than that than that quantifiable value and um, it's sort of replacing the the quality, you know, the quantitative with the qualitative, the, the the quantifiable with the unquantifiable, and then you're now you're basing everything on a judgment, and and that's you 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 you're on much less firm ground when you start doing that in a sense, right? And and you have to trust your judgment and your intuition. I think people make mistakes there, and one of Chuck's favorite lines is that good judgment comes from experience, and experience comes from bad judgment. Yeah, you know, and so I, you know, and that happens. The other thing that he says a lot is, you know, I'm lucky in this business if I learn something new, and I'm doubly lucky if it doesn't cost me too much. You know, the two <laughs> kind of go hand in hand, right? I like that one. That one's great. So, but that, I think that's a very normal evolution for an investor to take what you described. It's tough because that that judgment requires self conviction. It requires, you know, like the ability to trust in something that is not you can't point to it. But I I, I really like your concept of writing down the most important question because I have to think that that's a good true north to come back to when those when those judgment questions come up it's like okay does this impact my most important question i think it's i think i mean it's it's what we it's our north i mean it's our north star it's what it's what 
Chuck is always encouraging us to simplify. He's, he's very impatient in a good way in terms of long drawn out explanations. If you can't, if you can't articulate in a very short period of time, why what you're saying is important enough for his attention, then, you know, you can lose, you lose it, you lose Mm -hmm. it. You have to sort of earn that. And I think that's because it's, I mean, it's hugely helpful to us all, but at the beginning, when I was, you know, sort of tepid 24 year old analyst going into his office to, you know, pitch him an idea and you you could tell you lost his interest after you know bumbling around for a couple minutes and so over time you you get better at at that essence and and even now he'll say you know chris that's all really interesting but i don't think you've really honed in on on the the essence of this business and he'll challenge you hmm. and you'll say what you think is the essence and he'll be like no no you're not there yet and you know you and, and it's that that boiling it down process and then if you and once you get there gosh that's really valuable that's so helpful to have do you think um do you think he knows the essence of the business or do you think he knows when you know the essence of the business so there the businesses where that we already own i think he has in his mind what in essence is and for businesses that are new to him, I think he knows when I've articulated it clearly and in such a concise way that it it's probably close to being true. Huh. I think he's probably responding more to the length and lack of directness. He's a very direct person. I think he appreciates that directness more than, you know, I, when I first would tell him about a new software business, I don't think that he necessarily has the the essence of this this sort of you know random horizontal market software business you know stored in the back of his mind but as i articulate my way through it i think he says well you're a lot closer now than you were a minute ago Hmm. and so that's just you know and that's i think a product of a of a career and investing and fortunately for us we benefit from that a lot you know, the uh, or a story that I liked reading about was you had mentioned a company that you all went out to see and you were asking questions of the managers around yeah. the CEO and nobody felt the need to look at the CEO. And like when you're when you're talking about interacting with Chuck and then thinking of that story, he's got to be a good guy at reading people. Yes. And so so I'll, I'll tell that story if you. Yeah, yeah. As long as you're comfortable, I just don't want to like say anything that you don't want to say or whatever. No, no. So, so the business. So we were visiting Roper. At the time, it was called Roper Industries. Today, it's it's named Roper Technologies, and it's a business we still own and and think highly of. The uh, originally it was an industrial conglomerate, and then the board hired. Ryan Jellison to be the CEO. And, and he had this idea that improving the returns on capital for the portfolio would over time improve the stock price performance. And so he began this process of evolving the company, much in the same way that Danaher evolved from being an industrial conglomerate into being sort of this life sciences 
high quality recurring revenue business it is today. Roper went through that same process rather than the end result being a life sciences recurring revenue business. It's largely a vertical market software recurring revenue business today. Um, but it, it sort of went on that same journey. And Brian at the time was for, for much of that was at the helm. And then he very unexpectedly um, and tragically passed away. And, and the, the new management team is, is, is doing a great job, but we were sitting there with Brian and, and his team. And I was, this was probably in 2014. So I was only 26 and I've been here a couple of years and I thought it was a great meeting and we got out of the meeting. And the first thing that he observed in the car was the fact that we were asking questions of the CFO and of the president and chief operating officer. And they were freely responding to our questions without first sort of glancing over to Brian to make sure that he was giving them the thumbs up to go ahead and say whatever they were thinking. And then as they were talking, they were clearly not sort of, again, checking back for, 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 for approval from the boss. And he said, you know, that's a really important thing. And that's a really great sign. And that has been, and, and so you're right, he's, he's a great observer of people. And then, you know, he'll share that little tidbit. And then I took that and years later, 2018, uh, I was visiting, I won't mention the name of this company, um, but I was visiting a, with a company in New York and it was the exact opposite. There was a chairman and there was a CEO and the chairman was sort of the big personality and the CEO was running the business on a day-to-day basis. And I would ask a question to the CEO and the chairman would interrupt the CEO and his response. He would challenge the premise of my question often. Hmm. He wouldn't even just answer the question, but he would challenge the premise. And finally, his phone rang, the, tra- the chairman's phone rang and he, he picked up the phone and he left the meeting and you could see the relief on the CEO's face when he left the room. And he could answer my questions freely. And I remember my mind went back to the the comment that Chuck had made about Roper. And I said, you know, something just doesn't feel right here. And it wasn't any more than that. And we ultimately didn't make the investment. And I think from the time that we met with those guys in, in late 2018 to maybe a year later, the business had lost something like 80 or 90% of its value. And both of the guys had left. Both wow. of them had been sort of ousted. Um, and I'm not, you know, so was the reason because the, the founder interrupted the CEO? You know, of course not. But it may have it may have just been luck on my part. But I, I'd like to think that that's some of that pattern recognition that you sort of accumulate and develop over over time. And so that was really helpful for me. And by the way, I think. That's one of so. I think that I, I was I was reading uh, a transcript and a conversation that you had where you were talking about sort of what is the sort of optimal portfolio, and I think the comment you made was, well, it sort of has to be optimized for me, yeah, and my personality, and it's in my my. It's terrifying how much they, due diligence you've done on me. <laughs> I have help. (laughs) I can't take all the credit. Yeah, no, that that is is what I said. It's got to be something that I can live with and I can live with the drawdown. And 
And I, th- I really, I hope that somebody that's listening to this hears this at the right time. And, uh, you know, I know there's pain in the market right now, but, you know, I think go to, go to war with the soldiers you can win with. And I think, so that is, that goes back to sort of the Josh Waitzkin embrace your funk kind of thing. Right. So, you know, you, you sort of have to, you have to build a portfolio that is sort of in harmony with your unique disposition, which makes it so that there's never a right and wrong answer as it, as it relates to somebody else looking at your portfolio and saying, well, my portfolio is better. And so, for example, the reason I thought of this was because we're talking about this outspoken founder who is challenging my premise, right, on every question. And, you know, the, the, so if you say, well, how, do, how does my unique personality show up in the portfolios that I build? And I would just say there are plenty of examples of outspoken and boastful CEOs who receive a lot of stock options, who use a lot of leverage, who have compounded magnificently over time, but that's just not my cup of tea. Hmm. I sort of prefer the Mark Leonard, Warren Buffett prototype. They're founders. They own a lot of stock outright, not through options. They look at shareholders as a fiduciary would look at a client. So. Phil Fisher refers to that as trusteeship. And I really love that word because that's a higher standard, I think, than uh, legally what a management team has to have. But I mean, Mark Leonard will tell you outright when he thinks the shares are overvalued. I mean, how many, how many managers do you know of who will do that? Yeah. You know, Warren refused to buy back stock for years because he didn't want it to be predatory because he knew he had more information than the the selling shareholders would have. And he's only doing it now because he's making it perfectly clear to everybody who dares sell their shares back to him that he thinks that they're selling to him for less than what the business is worth. I mean, that's just another level of honesty. And and, And there aren't that many folks like that out there but there are enough of them that you can build a portfolio i think yeah and so i mean and in both cases share count doesn't go up i mean there have been 21 million shares outstanding at constellation software since 2006 you know they're not they're not diluting the shareholders so that's that's kind of that's that's how it that's how my own unique disposition sort of I find it offensive and I'm just off put when there's there's sort of the boastfulness or putting down competitors openly that sort of thing. I wonder if that doesn't upset me so much because I like hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> like I like there's the guys that talk shit and back it up don't really bother me, but I will say that I I do try to keep a pretty open mind and my eyes fairly open that like if push comes to shove, where do I sit in the equation here? Uh, Because Mm -hmm. I think there are certain, there are certain people that I think you got to be aware that you're probably on the lower end of the priority list than others. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of the interesting questions about 
some of these software businesses today, because in the old days, what were shareholders? They were capital providers for a business. And so they were a necessary partner for growth over time. But if you have businesses that generate enough cash flow that they don't really need shareholders to play that capital provider role, they're more of a liquidity provider. It, it puts shareholders in a fundamentally different position than they've been in historically. And I just think it means that you have to be even more discerning about who you partner with as far as the management team goes and, and how they view you as a shareholder. Hmm. I like how you said that. I, I, I think um, the, with share-based comp, it's almost as if the employees are the people willing to finance the growth. and the role of the share price is to keep them interested in working there. Mm-hmm. I thought an interesting interview or article that came out today was apparently like Peloton's employees are watching the share price crater. I can assure you that happens everywhere. Uh, I, I, I think managing through a really volatile stock price would be a very, very difficult endeavor. I know at BMO, I mean, our share price was not particularly volatile. Everyone knew when it was down. I mean, mm-hmm. people talked about it constantly. You know, maybe not everyone, but enough that everyone in the office knew what the share price was doing. So it's interesting. It's a risk factor. I mean, if you think about, I believe if you read the Salesforce 10K, there's a risk factor in there that has to do with being located in Silicon Valley and having such a, a competitive labor market there. Because I mean that is a factor. If if the if the share if the share price declines meaningfully, then you have a you know an unmotivated labor force who can very easily you know take their skills, which are your assets at the end of the day, right out the door, and go over someplace else, which has a more promising trajectory and is willing to, to issue options. And so it's a real it's a really it's a real conundrum. You know, we do a lot of software research here, and uh, we we sort of all else equal would rather find businesses that aren't located in some of those really competitive labor markets. I think it just it, it changes the dynamic a little bit, yeah. maybe a little bit less mercenary. Yeah, that makes sense. And then the other thing that stinks, you know, if you have such competition, when things go bad, Lee. Uh, you probably have to pay people a lot more to stay. And it's like one of these negative cycles that can get going, at least from the minority shareholder liquidity provider mm-hmm. standpoint. Yeah. Well, and it, and it's one of the cases where the sort of stock-based comp add back, you know, it, it, with the sort of the idea that it's a non-cash item. Well, to the extent that that non-cash item is replaced by cash, higher cash payments, then it really becomes an expense quickly, right? And so it can contribute to the sort of the, the downward feedback loop that you're talking about there. Yeah, it's one of those things that doesn't matter until it matters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How, um, how often do you like personally or as a firm think about macro and what's going on? And And part of why I'm asking this is, you know, we're at this period where on Twitter spaces, people are saying this is, you know, the the correction of the century is coming. SAS is correcting. That's going to rein in spending. All your AWS assumptions are completely bogus because it's based on 
inflated VC spending. And like, it's a very elegant theory. I think there's probably an element of truth to it. I think that the probability that that results in the crash that is the end all be all crash is very low. But like, you know, there's this, um, there's a tension between there's something smart being said versus it doesn't matter versus like, when should I pay attention? So when you think about, so the answer is we think about some of those big questions less so when you think when you say macro we're not of course we're paying attention but we're not really we have no view on the direction of gdp or inflation or interest rates and ultimately we're trying to invest in businesses that we would classify as sort of all weather who are not subject to exogenous factors like oil prices or inflation in that same way i think you know a lot of our clients recently are asking us how is the portfolio positioned to to withstand a higher level of inflation and whether that's you know, mastercard where it collects a you know a basis point a number of basis points on the dollar volume so as the as the dollar volume rises as inflation it adjusts it's a nice hedge. automatically it's a very nice hedge you know, American Tower, a number of their their contracts have pricing escalators built into them, either fixed or based on inflation, depending on where in the world you are. Um, there, and then there's just the good old fashioned pricing power businesses. Uh, and so, you know, we try to position the portfolio that way, so you have that all weather element that can withstand. And you know, that was a lesson for me. Talk about my mistakes. You know, earlier. You said Chuck told you that the next American Tower is probably American Tower. Well, years ago, I thought that the next Danaher was a business called Colfax, which was founded by the Rails brothers, the same guys, uh, Stephen and Mitch Rails, who who founded Danaher. And but the difference was that while Danaher had moved towards these recurring revenue businesses, Colfax was still in macro sensitive businesses that were highly sensitive to swings in currencies and commodity prices and and just general gdp growth and so you know that was a painful lesson for me in you know the importance of being all weather and so so we 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 don't think a lot about the the macro in that sense but we do think about some of these big questions that you're sort of alluding to so for example just let's talk for a minute about saas multiples you know what? What do you, you know? What What do you think about the the the? Because if you look at a historical chart of software multiples, I mean it's 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 pretty sort of stretched relative. History well. is not a yes. yeah. That's not controversial. That said, that's a fair fair way of saying it. Yeah, right? corrected a fair amount when you factor in sales growth and multiple compression today. Yes, right. Yes, we're 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 working, and so. So we would think about, so the, the, what we would think, and this would be my version of macro, is I would say, so there's, there's, there's absolutely no question that some of the multiples that you're seeing now are implying substantial growth for a long time to come. And I understand why, why investors are willing to pay those multiples, because if you look at a business with a 98 or a 99% customer retention rate, and you extrapolate that, you know, you're going to be in business for a very long time. 
of course, the problem is the extrapolation. And you just have to be really confident that there's not going to be some sort of adverse change in that retention rate in the future. And what you're essentially doing, especially with the the sort of yet to be profitable software businesses, is that you're essentially underwriting management's assessment of customer lifetime value. Yeah. They're laying out the cash today in the form of either new customer acquisition expenses or product development, right? And they're justifying those investments based on an expectation about future customer retention. And if they get that math wrong, then they're could be a lot of sort of shareholder value destruction taking place, but you don't know it yet. It's a lot like an insurance business. You don't really know the wisdom of an underwriting decision for multiple years a lot of times in the insurance business. Yeah. And yeah, longer tail, right? Longer tail. And so that's a macro issue that we think about. You know, we we ask the question, is it possible that LTVs are harder to come by today than they were 20 years ago when fat when SaaS was first taking share from a lot of the on-prem solutions back then. Because there's just more competition. There are more, you know, young, bright folks who are receiving a lot of venture funding trying to disrupt the existing software providers because now there's a better appreciation for how fantastic these businesses can be. And if so, you know, what does that mean for the current vintage? of early stage unprofitable software businesses. Can you just apply the sort of long-term 30% operating margin end state to all of these businesses? That's a question. That's that's the kind of macro-ish idea that I would wrestle with. And of course, there is no answer. I don't know the answer to that. I'm in Middleburg. I'm not in San Francisco. So I'm probably the last person you want to ask you know, for the answer to this question. But that's what I'm wondering about the way I answer it is on a micro basis. And so, I'm, you know, we're largely, we own a number of software businesses, but the average multiple you know, EBITDA margin for our software businesses is in the 30s, right? So we've sort of tended towards the, the more mature. Yeah, let it um, prove out and then you can analyze yeah. what it's probably going to be at end state rather than making guesses. Yeah. I got nervous and, you know, maybe to my detriment, maybe not, but I have a buddy who has a lot of friends in Silicon Valley, ran his own company. And he said to me a little while back, he said, you know, I have friends that are hiring engineers at a pace that they know doesn't make sense. But they also know that this is maybe one of those times that they can make generational wealth. And people want to see engineer hiring. And they also want to see growth. So like how much of that decision make one how much of that anecdote is reality and two how much of that decision making is driving growth forward whereas you know in like a real world scenario without those incentives and maybe stocks correcting takes away some of those incentives what does growth look like then they're unanswerable questions from my yeah. seat but it's what has kept me away in in certain instances it's a hard, I mean, it's really hard. I don't think accounting conventions help us very much. You know, it would be, I, I, you look back and I think Michael Magusin has done a really nice job recently in helping us think about this issue, which is back when, you know, Walmart was a young business and was growing quickly and was opening all these stores. 
they were able to capitalize and then depreciate the cost of opening those new stores over what they thought was the useful life of that asset that they were investing in. And so you had a version of the financial statements that was a little bit more useful and sort of forward link forward looking than what we have now with a lot of the businesses out there that are investing through their P&L and their income statement because of course there's there's a little bit less flexibility around I mean there 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 are obviously investments in product development that are happening that will benefit these businesses for multiple years and they're being expensed entirely in the year incurred and I think the same holds true for sales and marketing and and so if there was a similar concept as useful life of those assets and the businesses were thinking in those terms and and reporting financials in a way that helped investors think in those terms it would be really useful from my point of view we can make those assumptions but you know you're 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 stacking assumptions upon assumptions upon assumptions at that point you know in an attempt to get to what we would consider sort of owners earnings it's just it's just more difficult. Yeah, I don't know. If, and so he he put out a paper I think where he looked back and he said, "Look, we think that this percentage of sales and marketing for the average business over this period of time could be capitalized and and depreciated over this amount of time, and you can take that and apply it." And I think that's helpful as a as sort of a base framework. Uh, it definitely is pointing you in the right direction, I think, but it's still really hard. You know, what's tough because about again, that for me too, though, is like, okay, fine. I agree with that. But like, if, if it is cultural, I, I think, I don't know what I'm talking about here. It's all speculation, but I suspect in these high growth companies, it's cultural to go out and win and it's cultural to go out and I don't want to say overspend because that's not the right way to frame what I'm trying to say. But if tough times hit, and the stock price comes down and some of the expenses come in like to what in human organizations that stuff can it feels like it can break when there are substitute companies to go work for mm-hmm. right like at accenture that's kind of like a business that people are going to stay at i think it offers mm-hmm. a good quality of life and it's uh enterprise sales business to business like i i don't i don't worry about everyone from accenture moving to the next big consulting firm but some of these saas sales forces i do worry about the turnover especially with how much money you can make if you're good at enterprise sales it's crazy it's what i should have done <laughs> i feel like i could have been a pretty uh, yeah. decent salesperson that i started Should've... 20 years ago right code yeah, well, that that has that ship ship has sailed. I'm trying to get my kids into the Minecraft, the one that you can uh, code, and I think I got a reasonably good chance at doing that. Uh, if, if if somebody asked me today, you know, somebody young and said, you know, blank slate, I could I could be happy doing anything. What should I do? I'd say I think you should learn how to write code. Yeah, yeah, it probably would have been a better use than like trying to learn Spanish for me. Just, just because like I always, I grew up in South Florida. If, if I had just gone to Miami more often, I probably could have picked it up, but I didn't use it enough. So, oh, well, such is life. It was a better use of time than Latin uh, for me. You know what I, what I like 
reading, uh, just like I'm jumping around here, but you said something, it's important to, to cultivate quality as a, as a way of life mm. and listening to you talk and listening to your selection process and stuff. I like how I'm going to call it simple. It's not simple, but it is, in my opinion, what you've articulated today is uh, taking an idea and taking it seriously. And I, I respect that a lot. There's a lot of discipline in how you guys go about your business. So you, you said the Q word, quality. And so I kind of have to preface this by, by saying I'm a member of the uh, Robert Persig fan club, so to speak. And so we can go down a rabbit hole on quality. Um, static versus dynamic quality and the balance between the two of them and, and how that applies to investing. Yeah. Let's At do this. Point, that's, but, um, but I think, yeah, I, I mean, I think quality and discipline are, I think if I sort of had to, if I had to pick sort of like four words that would, that would describe, because at the end of the day, I, you think about this and you say, well, what value do we bring at the end of the day? Like what does, Ocreed capital bring to the table for our clients that they couldn't do on their own. And I think it's quality, it's discipline, it's focus, it's compounding, right? Those are sort of the four words that you would, you would say quality relates to our judgments about business quality. And so hopefully over time, cumulatively, all of our experiences put us in a better position to judge which businesses are, are, are of higher quality than others, which management teams are of a higher quality than others. The discipline piece relates to valuation. And Chuck talks a lot about being an investor in the underlying value of a business as opposed to the speculator in the price movement of shares, right? And so waiting until the, the deck is sort of stacked in your favor to, to buy some of these outstanding businesses. Focus is, is just managing concentrated portfolios. And we've talked about that. And then the last one, is the compounding, which is a mindset, and there's a lot of discipline that that's kind of around compounding. And and I I would tell people, it's always been harder to convince Chuck of the wisdom of selling a business than of buying a new business for the portfolio. Always. But it, so if if we had this portfolio and there were 20 businesses in it, and I came to him and I said, here's something new you've never heard of it before. I think we should we should make an investment here. The bar would be lower to get that new business into the portfolio at an equal position sizing, let's say, as taking an existing position at that same size and exiting it. Hmm. And that's because he already knows what he owns with what he owns. He knows what he owns and he knows the danger of selling. He just know. And so uh, I don't, not to go backwards and revisit all that. I'm just saying that is a, no, we can, because this is important mindset. That's, that's just, I think, and that's a, that's something that, that you as a professional money manager can sort of bring, I think, to the table. And so anyway, that's, those are, that's how I would think it sort of, what is the, what is the value add that we have is sort of captured in those sort of four words there. Do you think, so is, is a tangential thought to what you just said, is that why holding a business at a valuation that you maybe wouldn't buy the business at? It's just kind of the default, like, look, I know that I, I believe I know with a fairly high degree of certainty that over the next 10 years, this is going to work out. So if it's a little overpriced today, who cares? 
we bought it better just let them do their thing mm-hmm. exactly yeah yeah for sure that makes sense man i wish i had learned this like 10 years ago oh well it's hard i mean i and it's and so the practical reality is that in the last 12 months i've sold a couple of businesses so even even being armed with all of this and and having chuck sit 20 feet in that direction from me right and having worked with him for for 10 years at this point there still are times when you sell things and you face all of this stuff and you and you try to process it and make a good decision and sometimes you get it right and sometimes you get it wrong so it's it's still really hard i think it's the hardest thing we do next to i think evaluating people may be the hardest thing that we do but then the next hardest thing is when to sell Hmm. it's probably be the two harder thing the two hardest things because people can be tricky yeah there's no uh there's no flashing light that comes on a huckster right no No, and they're actively trying to deceive you and so that makes it harder yeah or they have some self-interest that's opposed to your own and so i'll tell you what i've noticed man i think sometimes people are attracted to the fact that i'm honest and it's like well i have a lot of warts like you know and then people will say to me like you're wrong on this or that and it's like i i know like i don't know what to tell you right um but sometimes i wonder if in the evaluation of people it's like well what i like about this person might be the reason that i shouldn't listen to this person right or whatever there's just a slick and that yeah yeah, or uh, you know, I don't, I don't know. It's weird. I, I have another buddy who, you know, on Twitter, he picked up like a bunch of followers because he talked about like how badly he had messed up, and he, he did it for himself. And he wrote me, and he's like, "It's crazy to me that people are following me because of everything that I've done wrong." And I said, "Well, I think it's really that people appreciate somebody being able to say that they did something wrong, yeah. but that there's like a." that emotional tie of liking that quality in a person can maybe lead to other conclusions that are incorrect. Mm. I I don't know. Right. But it's just reading people's tough. Reading people. And I think for me, you know, when I, when I'm, I, I think what we're all looking for is authenticity to some degree, which is kind of, it kind of gets at the heart of what you're talking about. Was that enough? You know, is somebody who says, you know, look, I'm, sort of self-labeling yourself as humble is one of those sort of challenging things, right? Because is that authentic or is that done with, with some other motive in mind, you know? And it's just, it's so hard to, it's so difficult to accurately assess people. And I think you, it's iterative. It's sort of like dating and you get to know these managers better over longer periods of time. And that's another reason why, if you feel like you've invested the time and 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 do have that confidence in a management team, let's say, for example, this comes up a lot. You invested in a business, and ten years later, while it was growing at sort of fifteen percent per year when you first made the investment, now it's a much more mature business and it's growing at twelve. And you're trying to decide whether or not to move on and you found something else new that's growing at 15. And so you can kind of recover back to that original higher growth rate and keep the portfolio's weighted average growth rate at that higher level. 
but it means starting that process over again and having to learn a new team. And do you trade that 12 that you feel really good about that the distribution of outcomes around that 12 is, is pretty narrow in your mind because you know the people and you know the business really well. And now you're going back and sort of resetting the clock and you've got a wider distribution of outcomes and there's the uncertainty around the quality of the people. And that's a really hard decision. At some point, if the, the goal is to generate above average returns over long periods of time and 10 is the average and you're charging fees, you can't let it get too far below 12, right? But that, that, and that, that becomes really hard. That, that, becomes, that becomes the challenge with owning something like Berkshire, for example, for us, because it's just below the, that hurdle rate. If you think it's going to grow at sort of a, a market like ten percent over a long period of time, but you have you, you you have absolutely no questions whatsoever as it relates to the integrity of the people involved, at least at the top. Yeah, that particular business. The only thing that keeps me up at night, and if anyone works for Berkshire or any portfolio company, please reach out to me, Bill Brewster TBB on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> You know, like, do people go to work for Warren and Charlie or do they go to work for Berkshire? And when Warren and Charlie are not there, you know, what does that look like? I I was fortunate to meet Ted Weschler for like two seconds and that guy is like a gem of a person. I mean, I like within a second, I was like, I like this guy. (laughs) So if Berkshire is filled with that, then I'm not too concerned, but I don't have that level of, I don't have insight into whether or not it is, right? I can just take Charlie and Warren at their word, but they're not going to sit there and tell me that their baby's ugly. Like nobody says that. Sure. Uh, so we'll see. Well, it's, it's gotten so big. I mean, your question is an interesting one. Do they go to work for Warren and Charlie? Do they go to work for Berkshire or do they go to work for one of the subsidiaries? Where Where is the sort of sense of identity? Yeah. That's right. And, and you get to be that big. Yeah. Like I, I know a family that's old to Berkshire. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know that their tie is like, so the man that started the company is older. Warren and Charlie are older. I don't know that the family's tie is to Berkshire in the same way. So you've got, you've got layers of secession planning here to worry about. It's not just one. That gets that can get complicated when growth is also slow on top of that. Your skew can get out of whack. I, I say that is it's a big holding of mine. So it's yeah, something no, I, I, you know, I I haven't acted on this, but it is something that keeps me thinking throughout the day. That would be my most important question. Can the engine continue to run when they're gone? And and there you go, right? And so any hint that you get that is helpful. And answering that question, you realize that's a really important piece of information, and then everything else you can kind of move past. Yeah, that's right. That's why it's such a such an awesome exercise. It's a good way to to lead into the idea of quality being static and dynamic. Oh yeah, you want to go down that rabbit hole real quick? Okay, so so Robert Persig wrote two books, right? There's the Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance, and I wrote a piece called Advice for Aspiring Investors. Uh, It's a white paper and it's on our website. And the reason I wrote the piece was because 
younger sort of college aged students were reaching out and saying, what's your advice as, as far as sort of getting into the investment business? And I found myself repeating a lot of the same tidbits over and over again. So I said, let me write this down and I'll put this out there. And then at least maybe it could, it could help some more people and save me from repeating myself. And it kind of, anyway, so, and in that I, I include a, a, a list of reading books, investing books that I would recommend. And a, a few people have looked at that list and they've noticed that Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is on the book, on the list. And they say, well, that sort of surprised me because what does that have to do with investing? And I also have uh, Josh Waitzkin's The Art of Learning on that list, which isn't directly applicable to investing. But I think these the, the bigger concepts apply. Um, and I know that, for example, Nick Sleep sort of references some of the meta- metaphysics of quality in, in some of his letters. And, and that's, that's sort of Robert Persig's um, invention. But the reason why Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Maintenance is important, I think, is because as we talked about it a couple of minutes ago, one of the things that we bring to the table is judgment about quality of businesses and of people. And what Zen talks about is how to think about quality. It helps us think about quality, this issue of quality. And then both in terms of, of the object and of the process. So I have this, fr- I have it framed on my desk and it says, uh, it's, this is a line from, from Persig. It can be at a level as simple as sharpening a kitchen knife or sewing a dress or mending a broken chair. The underlying problems are the same. In each case, there's a beautiful way of doing it and an ugly way of doing it. And in arriving at the high quality, beautiful way of doing it, both an ability to see what looks good and an ability to understand the underlying methods to arrive at that good are needed. Hmm. I like that. It's 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 just an absolute gem from my point of view. It's it's the importance of and so as as an investor, we both need to understand what looks good, but we also need to understand the process required to arrive at identifying that good, that quality, that business. And so so that that means that means looking at the sort of elements of competitive advantage and having sort of your your business quality checklist if you will, which, you know, which I think most people have either explicitly written down or in their mind. But then also, you know, how, how, how do I make my process? How do I, how do I sort of structure my day in a way that maximizes the likelihood that I'm going to be able to identify quality when I encounter it? And, and, and that for us, that's, those are process questions and that involves the the MIQ, the, the most important question that involves the essence statements. It involves decision journaling and writing and focus, which is super, super important for me. I'm naturally in a, an attention deficit sort of mind. And so I can't have a lot of things going on at once. I need to be really focused on just one thing and trying to get down to you know what really matters in a situation requires my sort of exclusive focus over time. And so that's 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 why Zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance is really interesting to me. And then what he what 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 Robert Persig did was he wrote a, a subsequent book 
think it was like 15 or 16 years later called Lila, which is um, not- I never hear this interest or mentioned. Yeah. Interesting. And, and this is the more important of the two books. Really? Yes. Huh. Because in, 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 in Zen, he talks about quality, but he refuses to define it. He says you, you, you sort of would know it if you encountered it, but there's no way to define it. Huh. And we're, we're getting like really philosophical now. But, yeah, well, it's like the Supreme um, Court's definition of porn. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Or, or if you show, you know, his example was if you're in a classroom of young students and you read a good essay to them, but you haven't taught them about construction of arguments, intros, body, conclusion any of the structural pieces, but you read them what is a good essay and then you read them a not good essay, they know which one has quality and which one doesn't have quality. Yeah. So his argument is that quality sort of precedes language and Mm -hmm. the ability to define it. So he refuses to define it. So that's really not super helpful though, (laughs) because he's not giving us much to work with in that way. Right. So you're, you're sort of left with this idea that you should go pursue and cultivate quality, but you don't exactly know what that means. And he, and he kind of tries to splice it in a couple different ways, classic versus romantic and these different, but it's not, it's not super helpful. And so then he writes the, the, the sequel Lila and in Lila, he explains, I think in a much better way, uh, how you should think about defining quality. And he categorizes quality in two separate ways. He has static quality and dynamic quality. And the way there's a, there's a, there's an, a, an example in there, an analogy, uh, a metaphor where he says, the first time you hear a song, you're walking down the street and a car goes by and they're playing a song and you love the song the first time you've heard it and there's just something you love about it that's dynamic quality Hmm. it's newness okay you listen to the song a few more times and every time you listen to it maybe you're a little bit less enthusiastic about it than you were the first time and it gets to the point eventually where you know it's a good song you like listening to it but it doesn't doesn't have that new energy that it had at the beginning that's static quality Hmm. and so every and so Every and if you have only dynamic quality, then you have chaos. And if you only have static quality, you have sort of degeneracy. It's not, it's mm-hmm. not, you, you can't have just one or the other. The whole idea is you want to have some balance of the two. Okay. Mm-hmm. This is like, again, this is a lot of philosophy. So then how do you bring it back to, to investing? Well, you think about businesses and, you know, you can think of, you pick any business and you say, all right, where do I think on the spectrum of sort of static to dynamic, this business falls? And then the real question is, do I think that they have a good balance? Are they out over their skis trying new things that have never been shown to work well before? And maybe that means there's too much dynamism, too much dynamic quality there. And you're taking a lot of risk as the investor. Or maybe there's there's just not a lot of sort of cutting edge cutting edge thought taking place. Things are just too static, and 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 so you would say maybe it's out of balance in that way. Hmm. And there's maybe risk of being disrupted. And so you really can bring this sort of metaphysical idea of quality 
to investing um, if you want to. And, you know, I have, I have a few sort of investing friends who we love to kick this stuff around and, and find it really interesting. It's definitely out there. They're, they're two of the more difficult books to get through, I realize. But, and then the great thing is you can apply this to your life outside of investing as well, which is, which is great. You know, this is uh, this is probably the top for this poor stock. But uh, as you were talking, I think about Google and their philosophy where like, you know, search, I think, I mean, I don't think it, it I don't think it's actually static quality because I, I think it's still as amazing as it was the first time I found it. But the idea of continuing to focus on some of the moonshots and the other bets and keeping that energy in the organization sort of it's got this natural tension uh it's it's top of mind for me for a number of reasons oh, but... precisely i think that's exactly the application yeah 100%. it's cool i think that's and so you would ask a question you'd say you know we talked about charter before like what's the balance of static versus dynamic quality in a cable company how much does it need you know the balance will be different for every for every business yeah or, you know, there's, there's, there, there are a lot of sort of innovative businesses out there right now that are publicly traded, very, very innovative, sort of on the cutting edge, maybe not very profitable. There's a lot of excitement around them. And then from an investable point of view, you just look at them and you say, is keeping in mind that all dynamic quality is sort of chaos, does that, you know, how does that sort of work its way into what you're thinking about? And it's a, it's a judgment call. Everything at the end of the day is a judgment. You know, he's Persick's not giving you the keys to the kingdom in terms of making the judgment call, but he's kind of helping you think about it in terms of a framework that could be useful. Yeah, I, I like it. I mean, Google obviously resonated, but going back to Charter, one thing that I like about that, right, is they, um, what I like about what you're saying as it pertains to that particular entity is they are using a current asset base and wireless uh, agreement to penetrate the wireless market to like move the company forward. If we circle back to Altice, you know, that had an MVNO uh, agreement with Sprint, which is like not quite the same, you know, wireless offering, right? And like, I, I was kind of relying on a low multiple and a static, again, it's not quite precise, the language, but like static quality. But I, I, I traded an entity that I think is going strategically in a better direction with a better set of assets. And one got hurt. So I, I really like this concept. I'm going to have to noodle on this. I may write you about this if that's okay, yeah, uh, because well, I, this is interesting to me. So the other thing you you look for so now so now I got your your attention you're kind of interested in this is you know there's always somebody who does the new thing first you know the first person to eat lobster but you know somebody had to be the crazy person yeah that said, person oh, was insane yeah. yeah what are you thinking yeah like, the first guy lost his finger the second yeah, guy right, ate the lobster exactly. <laughs> yeah right so the first guy yeah and so 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 that so you're you're it's sometimes fun to look inside of one of these businesses for that first person who's mm -hmm. the who's the instigator of change 
who's the person who's challenging the sort of accepted collective wisdom. And sometimes that can help you determine whether or not there's a good balance of dynamic and static quality. You know, if, if somebody in a position of authority is that figure who's, who's open to new things and is always innovating, is probably a good way of thinking about it, then, then there's probably a good pr- amount of presence of, sort of that dynamic quality. If, it's, if you can't find that any place, at least in the top ranks of the business, then it's fair to ask where, where it might be at all. And so you can, and, and, and there's, there's quite a bit of discussion about that. I believe in chapter nine of Lila, if you wanted to uh, go in there, the, the way to read Persig, by the way, just because I know there are probably a bunch of people who've tried and failed to read it. Cause I did the first bunch of times you read the first few chapters, then you read the last few chapters. Huh? So you read the first few chapters. So you kind of get a lay of the land. And then I like to read the last couple chapters because then you know where he's going. Yeah which is really helpful. And then you sort of attack the middle. Yeah, you can watch how we <laughs> weaved it together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, 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 it just, otherwise you read it and then you got to reread it hmm. because it's only after you finish, you're like, okay, I kind of see where he's going with this. And now I have to go back and reread the beginning part because I didn't comprehend what all that meant. Hmm. So if, 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 if someone's listening who struggled to make sense of these books before um, reading them, just sequentially, chapter by chapter, I might, I might try to, to do it that way instead. Thank you for that tip. <laughs> um, I got to be mindful of your time. And uh, also, I mean, we're, we're coming up on two hours, but I do want to circle back. What are the last things that are uh, transcribed in the uh, crown molding in the conference room? So we have, we've already covered the bottom line of all investing is rate of return. We have focus, and there's an Albert Einstein quote, everything should be kept as simple as possible, but no simpler, which, you know, there's another, there's another quote that I absolutely love, which is Yvonne Chouinard, who's the founder of Patagonia, and he says, and I got this framed over here. It says, "If it seems to me, if there's an answer, it lies in these words, restraint, quality, and simplicity. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is, this is uh, the essence of what I have gathered from talking to you. That is a very good quote for you to have in the office. So I, I leave you, if there's a good quote to leave on, we'll leave on that. And um I, I just have to thank you for 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 this. This you know, this was a lot of fun. Oh, please, man! I'm honored to have you. The fact that you want to talk to me is like a dream come true no, for me, and was, I'm not even was, blowing smoke. There aren't a lot of people who will talk to me about the metaphysics of quality, and <laughs> uh, <laughs> and uh, Josh Waitskin in the same conversation we talk about the art of not selling. So, from my point of view, uh, there's there's just no more enjoyable way to spend a couple hours and. So I, I really, I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate you stopping by and I'm sure that there are a ton of listeners that will as well. So uh, thank you for your time. Great. Great.